0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to the MBN Entrepreneurship and Leadership Channel. As well as new content, we are making available selected podcasts recorded by our hosts prior to joining the MBN family. This is one of them, and so this podcast may refer to itself with a different name and identity. Enjoy the show. the center of innovation is here and you know this is part of the message of Project Kashmir, of this whole podcast that there's something happening here which is beyond just good value for money. Like I said having
0: the vision is great but the key is these concrete initiatives that drive it at the ground level.
1: I think Poland all those people who are really they do extremely well with very limited resources and we can take advantage of the really low costs here. You know, Poland is the land of opportunity and I I like to say the east is the new west because you always used to go west in history to find more adventure and danger and prove yourself. There are some good things beginning to happen here in Krakow, but we've got a very long way to go. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, good night, Project Kashmir listeners. I've got a very special guest on the show today, Mark McCurgo. Mark, how are you?
0: I'm very well, thank you, uh, Richard. Glad to be joining you from Edinburgh in Scotland.
1: Yeah, I was just about to, 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 to say that. So I'm, I'm in Krakow, Poland. You're in Edinburgh, Scotland. Scotland. And um, the last time you were in Krakow, I guess, was when you were hosting the TEDx Kashmir stage. Is that is that correct?
0: Uh, yes, I think so. Uh, um, I, uh, although I got a funny feeling. No, I, that must be right. That must be right. Although I have a funny feeling I've actually been there since. But no, it was last June, wasn't it? June 2018. That's and, that's uh, that's I, and I visited K- uh, Krakow a couple of years before that for the Christmas markets, just as a tourist, which was also very nice. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> okay, well, uh, uh, the TEDx audience, some of them will will remember and know you, a lot of our there's, there's an overlap, like a Venn diagram, between the people who know about TEDx Kashmir and the people who know about the podcast and we do have listeners all over the world so could you just in a minute or two introduce yourself in the same way you would if someone just bumped into you at a, a party and said uh, hello who are you what do you do in that slightly sort of pro forma way and while you're doing that I'll, I'll share the Facebook live across a few a few different uh, social media profiles which means I won't be making eye contact
0: okay well hi everyone I'm Mark McCurgo I am an author, speaker, consultant, uh, teacher, trainer. But I like what I like to do is to bring new ideas into the world of management and organisations. And I've done that three times now: uh, once with the ideas around accelerated learning, once with the ideas around solution-focused change, and most recently with the ideas around host leadership, leading as a host, not a hero or a servant. And so over the past three decades or so, I've kind of picked an uh, an idea a decade or something and uh, written about it, spoken about it, taught about it, uh, tried to encourage other people to investigate it and so on. And I'm very keen on ideas that are uh, by not focusing on the problem, you can make change more effective. And by uh, not trying to be the heroic leader, you can make leadership more effective by focusing on Bringing other people together. So each of these ideas has a, a not only is it effective, but it also has a sense of the oh really I didn't I know didn't know that didn't figure that, which is what kind of what attracts me to these to these things. And so so I love to kind of take an idea, often from somewhere else in the ether, bring it into the world of organisations, management, and all of that stuff, uh, and help people to discover it, try it out, use it for themselves. Uh, and see how the world doesn't quite work in the way that they perhaps thought it did or assumed that it did.
1: Thank you for that. I, I, this podcast is focused on innovation and entrepreneurship. And I see you more as a social organizational entrepreneur than a business founder and leader, although to an extent you are a sort of self-employed consultant now, although you weren't always that. So I, I, I don't want to remove the entrepreneur title from you. Completely. Um, But also you talked about doing things better, faster, cheaper with fewer resources, which is really a fundamental part of part of innovation. Would you agree?
0: Absolutely. Yes. There's no point doing something doing something more expensively unless it's better in some other way, I suppose. Yes, yes, yes. Um, but there are, but in the world of consultancy, and the world of organisations, there are all sorts of people trying to convince you that your work, their way, which is expensive and long and time consuming and involves you handing lots of power to them, is in fact better. And my mission is to say that's not usually the case. Be very wary of those people.
1: Yes, if someone's trying to persuade you to spend a lot of money, uh, particularly on something that they're providing, there's this there's always a suspicion that they've got an interest in you doing that, which isn't quite the same as your own interest, isn't
0: it? Absolutely, absolutely. And and I think it's trying to sort of prick those bubbles is another part of what I I really enjoy doing. Um, Of course, not everybody enjoys the fact that I do that, but that's uh, the advantage of me being an independent, relatively speaking, is that I don't rely on those people for a living, and therefore I can say largely what what I want to and what I can justify. As a scientist, I'm very keen on being able to justify things. So um, I'm a former physicist, uh, now a recovering physicist, of course, uh, but I still think a bit like a scientist a lot of the time. So I'm very keen to be able to justify things and and point people to evidence and and how do things work and so on as as part of my work.
1: Yes, and I, I certainly... Um, you picked up the scientist. You called yourself a re- recovering physicist. Um, it, what was there to recover from?
0: Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an Alcoholics Anonymous joke. Um, it's a, in Alcoholics Anonymous, they talk about being a recovering alcoholic, and you can never be better in their model from alcoholism. You can only be in recovery. And it's a joke because I, I don't agree with that. I think you people that can and do recover. From alcoholism with solution-focused ideas, but it's the idea that having been trained, it's sort a of jokey idea, that having been trained as a physicist, you, you're really struggling to get to really lose that, uh, and I don't want to lose that. I quite like being uh, a recovering physicist in the sense that I'm still very keen on science, but I recognise there are lots of things in this world to which science is not perhaps the answer, um, and there are some people who think it ought to be, but I don't think it is, so there are all kinds of things in life That can't really be answered by science, and that we need to go into other fields like music and poetry and uh, uh, and art and all kinds of other things like that to to dig into, and that that's a good thing.
1: Yes, so we've got some quite sort of diverse um diverse things to discuss. I'd like to because the reason I originally um, thought of you as a potential speaker on the TEDx Cashmere stage was that you were responsible for the Scottish part of Sunday Assembly, and uh, Pepper Evans and Sanderson Jones, who were the founders of Sunday Assembly, had both already spoken at TEDx Brighton and TEDx Shoreditch, respectively. And there's a kind of tradition in the TEDx community: you don't ask someone to give the same talk at two different TEDxes, and um, so when I approached you about that, you said, "Well, that's a very interesting topic, but I'd rather talk about host leadership." But for the for the sake of our listeners, could you explain what Sunday Assembly is before we move on to move on to host leadership? And then I want to move on to some of the other things you're doing, but we'll start with those two.
0: Okay. Well, at Sunday Assembly. Sometimes we call it a godless congregation or an atheist church. That's the soundbite that get people interested, and so. It's, it's like church, but without religion at all. And uh, Sanderson and Pippa, who you just mentioned, founded Sunday Assembly. They had both been to church in their youth and stopped going because they didn't believe anymore, but they missed church. They didn't miss God, but they missed church and they missed the kind of community and the coming together and the celebrating and the thinking that you people do in, in church in an ideal world. And so they decided in January 2013 to set up experimentally, this godless church in Islington, in London, Uh, I went along to the first one and I had thought about starting a thing like this with my wife Jenny, who's a humanist funeral celebrant, you'll do a funeral without God if you want one, and quite a few people do these days, Uh, and the Sixth Assembly experience was so much better than anything I could have created on my own, I immediately thought well I must throw my shoulder to the wheel of this, And so within a few weeks, I was the network coordinator for a non-existent as yet network of Sunday Assemblies and also playing in the band on the clarinet and saxophone. And so we come together in Sunday Assembly. There are now 50 odd uh, communities, congregations around the world. And we come together on a Sunday morning to uh, sing together pop songs, The Beatles and Queen, uh, and Pharrell Williams, all popular choices. Uh, We have a poet to read some poems, we have a speaker. Each assembly has a theme. Uh, we have some reflection time. We have somebody from the congregation talking about something they've been doing or struggling with. We have coffee and cake afterwards. And it all takes about an hour. So it's very modeled on a, a Christian religious service, uh fairly upbeat, <laughs> uh, fairly upbeat one. And uh, but there's no religion in it at all. And we think the church has learned a great deal in 2000 years about how to bring people together. And so we're after stealing as much of that creatively as possible, Uh, but doing it in this different way, this different, very much non-religious way. Uh, Although we're open to anyone who wants to come. You don't have to be signed up atheists to come. People from all kinds of backgrounds come and enjoy it. And uh, most of the chapters around the world meet once a month uh, on a Sunday. Uh, I had exactly eight yeah. hours of sleep, and uh, uh, so so. Um, and that started in in 2013. I moved from London to Edinburgh in 2016, and joined the committee here and became the chair soon afterwards. And uh, we we have quite a thriving community here in Edinburgh. About 60 people meet on a Sunday once a month, and uh, we're starting to expand out from that and do other things. Yes. Uh, and i love it i think it's fantastic it always always uplifting and i occasionally think oh do i have to go and do this but you go and do it and you come out feeling feeling better and you come out feeling like your sunday's got off to a great start you've met some nice people and maybe some new people you've sung some good songs and uh you've heard somebody interesting talking about something so it's a little bit like going to a ted-ish meeting although of course it's nothing to do with TED at all but it's that same kind of Coming, you know, the vibe you get from meeting meeting some nice people and hearing some interesting
1: stuff. Yes. While you're chatting, I'm posting I posted a link to um to Sunday Assembly uh webpage in the in the comments. Sorry, there's a video spring to life as a result of me doing that. Posted a link to that in the comments underneath the Facebook Live. And if anyone uh, we'll also put that in the show notes. As the
0: Online is a good website. SundayAssembly.online uh, is okay. our new global hub website, which uh, gives an introduction to the movement, gives links to all the uh, extant uh, congregations around the world. So, so that's a good place to start. There are various other ways to find it, but SundayAssembly.online is a good place to start if you're interested. Okay.
1: I'm going to I'm going to put that up on the screen in a moment. Um, And in fact, I I think the first time I saw you was um, from the back of the hall in Edinburgh about three or four years ago when you were playing your saxophone. And I was very happy that when you you came to grace the TEDx cashmere stage, you also brought your saxophone with you, I think, on the edge of your hand luggage allowance, as I remember it.
0: I have a special case for my auto saxophone, which makes it just about small enough to to get through, but actually, I've never had any problems. You just you just look confident, and uh, they wave you through. Um, but I do love to travel with an instrument because it's a great way of meeting people and a great way uh, of getting involved in different ways in uh, in things. And I, my recollection is that the TEDx Casimir, I, I sat outside the doors and uh, kind of serenaded people in as they arrived, looking a bit like a busker. And of course, they didn't really know at that stage who I was unless they they read the programme. Very carefully indeed, but it was nice to, to meet people in one way, and then later on in the day you meet them in another way, and that's a, that's a very nice way to get engaged with people. Exactly,
1: and it's what is one of the one of the the features of a of a good TEDx is that there's a lot of emphasis on well, obviously a, a huge effort on having uh, great ideas and speakers on the stage, but also. Also, making the whole experience of the day different, and you know, we always like to start with live music. And one one year we had a a band, another year a, a pianist. It was in the foyer of a theatre, and as people walk in, they just hear live mu- music, and immediately you get that sense of things being being a bit different. But and you've you've just come back from Nashville in the Nashville in the states. There's been a sort of global get together of the Sunday Assembly. People, uh, sort of uh, coordinators, organizers, and is there anything new from that you'd like to share with this audience? Because again, entrepreneurship is about making things happen and Sunday Assembly started from nothing and now exists. So it's a kind of entrepreneurial organization in the sense that it's having an impact having come from an idea.
0: Yes, absolutely. And so the the, the news really is that Sunday Assembly movement is very much alive and well. And we're setting into place new ways to support new startups and support each other. Uh, This used to be slightly carried out or was supposed to be carried out by a sort of headquarters function that never really did it. And the headquarters function has now disappeared. And so we're very much into a sort of independent network now, um, relying on supporting each other, which I think actually is a really good place for for us to be. Um, so uh, we're all volunteers and uh, but there is support out there. And I'm very keen to support new starters who want to start up Sunday Assembly. There's more about how to do that on SundayAssembly.online. So I suppose we called it the meeting this year Hashtag Reassembly. And it did have a feeling of people gathering again, you know, drawing renewed strength, having a new start on this new basis of rather than being a sort of being a bit less organized than we were perhaps intending or pretending to be in the past I'm very much uh, accepting our position now as a, a group of self-organizing self-supporting uh, and interdependent um, congregations around the world
1: yes and, and you, you i you shared with me a very a very nice uh, pdf document describing you know the processes of getting started and as someone who's been responsible for getting several organizations started. I, I I saw the wisdom of the wisdom of the approach. So I I, I don't think there's I don't want to spend too much time on that other than to, you know, draw attention to well perhaps one final thing that this was an idea that wasn't Mark's own idea, although your your own idea, although you'd thought of something similar, but you realized the best thing to do was to work with someone else rather than keep plowing on with your own thing. And very often for someone who wants to have the biggest impact you need to let go of your own baby and um and hitch your hitch your put your shoulder to someone else's wheel to get to get a to get along to get, have the most impact I, I guess you'd agree with that
0: absolutely very much so and, and the experience of um uh, throwing my shoulder to sandy 70s wheel was was an interesting one and they, they of course they were a first some people were a little bit suspicious. Who is this bloke, this fat bloke who comes along wanting wanted to help us? Um, but actually, once I got to know them over the course of a few weeks and months, they were very, very happy to, to have that help. And now they're both less involved with the movement. Uh, Pippa has retired really from Sunday Assembly to concentrate on her burgeoning showbiz career. and uh, Sanderson is engaged with a new baby and, and trying to start another business. And so in a way, you know, the founders have done their thing, but we're now entering a new phase when the founders have moved on, but still the spirit of what they created is very much alive and well and being taken on by other people. And I'm very much uh, one, of those, one of those people who's taking it on. When you
1: didn't take me up on the offer to talk about Sunday Assembly to the TEDx Kashmir audience, you said instead you'd like to talk about host leadership. And if you're going to summarize what host leadership is to someone who hasn't seen your talk, uh, what would you say the most important things? What what is it, and why is it important?
0: Well, it's a, it's a metaphor for leadership, uh, hosting, uh, as in receiving and entertaining guests. Uh, and we talk about being the host of a party or or the host of a, of a group. Um, and hosting and hospitality is a very very ancient art. It's been around as long as humanity itself. Um, but it struck me some years ago that, that hosting uh, would, was an interesting way to look at leading uh, because hosts bring people together in a good way, make sure they have what they need uh, and look after, if you like, the group and themselves in such a way that, that, that everybody can then do whatever they need to do in a good way, in a good environment and, and so on. And the skills uh, and uh, awarenesses needed to host a good party are very much, I think, like the skills and awarenesses needed to bring an organization or a project team uh, or a nonprofit together to do something. And I started investigating this uh, idea in 2003, and I rushed, had the idea of hosting leadership. And I rushed out to buy the book about how to be a good host and decided that there and found there wasn't one. And so being the sort of person I am, I set about writing the book on what's hosting about and then connecting that to leadership. And that book was finally published in 2014. It's called Host, Six New Roles of Engagement for Teams, Organizations, Communities and Movements by Mark McCurgo and Helen Bailey. And uh, uh, it's had some impact around the world. A new idea getting started is always a slow thing. It's one of the things I've learned rather disappointing me, is that these things take time to find their audience and find their market. And you can sell old things very easily because people understand them. But if something's really new, um, people don't know it. They don't know why they need it. They don't get it. They don't see why it might be important. At least many people don't. A few people do. And so you have to sort of build and build slowly to engage people in, in the ideas. Um, and books uh, are the way I like to do it, because as a recovering physicist, I like to write things, you know, in, in a good length and, and with, with sources and references, people to find out more. So the idea of leading as a host could be contrasted, if you like, with leading as a hero, which is also a very, very ancient idea, all the way back uh, into time immemorial that leaders should be heroes and come and save the day and step in and sort things out. Um, there was then this other movement in, starting in the 1970s of leader as a servant. Very, very good uh, metaphor. Requires a sophisticated idea of service to make sense of it, though, which a lot of people either don't have or can't be bothered to find out. So disappointingly underused. But leading as a host, um, many people find this an easier get than leading as a servant. Because hosts are I think, a little bit more notionally in charge of things. Uh, although they're not in charge of very much with regards to what goes on, they can encourage people, but they're mostly in charge of providing uh, uh, a topic, an invitation, a location, a place, a boundary, uh, and connections. Uh, and those are things that leaders can and should, I think, be very much focused on, ra- rather than trying to micromanage everybody out of existence. And so... The host leader brings people together um, and encourages them to get on with it uh, rather than trying to do everything for themselves, which, of course, results in burnout and disappointment and also disengaged people. And uh, one of the reasons that we subtitled the book Six New Roles of Engagement is that engagement is what hosting gets you. Engagement with the people, engaging the people with each other that's what you get and that turns out to be the secret source that makes all the other organizational things all your hr policies and your strategies and everything work because people are engaged with them and with the organization and with you and with each other so i'm putting out that leadership is about engagement first which then leads to all sorts of other things uh and uh, of course, we can make a parallel you no doubt you're going to go on and do this anyway with Sunday Assembly, because Sunday Assembly is a hosting job. It's about bringing people together, but slightly unusual group there. These are people who don't believe in God, but want to get together on a Sunday morning anyway. Um, and uh, so running a Sunday Assembly chapter is, is being a host very, very strongly, as is organizing all sorts of other things it can be looked at through the lens of being a host, acting as a host. bring your guests together in a good way yes
1: i was going to i was i'm going to go on to to ask if there's a parallel between your solutions focused working concept that is is the leader of a an organization that's got a solutions focus using maybe some kind of hosting skills to get the people present in the audience to work out their own their own ways to get things done rather than having top-down dictatorial or military management style. Do you see the parallel?
0: Yeah, well, there's a very good fit. There's a very good fit between the two because Solution Focus is very much about encouraging people to use their own own minds and brains and experience. And it's also about encouraging them to not approach things in terms of problem solving, uh, but in terms of uh, focusing on where do we want to be and what's working already. And quite a lot of businesses are good at focusing on where they want to be, but not at all good on focusing on what's working because they always want to focus on what's broken or what's wrong or what's not working. Uh, and so uh, the power of solution-focused approaches, which comes from solution-focused therapy, was designed as a therapeutic intervention in the first case in the late 1980s. Uh, and it works very well in that setting, but it also works very well in organizational settings. And it does have this nice counterintuitive element to it that uh, you're encouraging people to move their organizations on by not looking at what's wrong, (laughs) but instead by looking at what what they want and what's working and finding connections and and, and amplifications between those two. But yes, solution focus is a very um, uh, empowering method. It's a very appreciative method. And it's very much about trying to get everyone to use their um, abilities, uh, their skills, their good qualities as individuals, uh, find their place in the way that they can help the organization and help themselves the most. So it's it's on the other side of the spectrum from job descriptions, very often job descriptions and, and, and very, very detailed top-down management. But also we have the thing in solution focus that, you know, if it's working, do more of it. So if you have top-down job descriptions and they're working for you, well, fine, get on with it. Um, but, but you may find that there's more to come from your organization by helping people find their skills, their qualities, their strengths, and use them. Um, people get to be world-class by playing to their strengths, not by fixing their weaknesses. And if you focus on fixing people's weaknesses, you end up with a bunch of very average people. Because if you focus on helping people play to their strengths, you end up with a group of world beaters. Uh, And that on its own is quite a message for many organisations who who look at, you know, praise people and say, she's not very good at that, we should send her on a training course. And that's kind of patching it up at the best of times. What you should be saying is, what's she really good at and how can we put her in a position to make great use of that for us uh, in ways that nobody else could do? Much, much more
1: interesting. Yeah, uh, well, that makes makes perfect sense, and there's a very obvious point which is easily to illustrate in in sales that if you if you can make your best salesman or woman twenty or thirty percent better, that's going to be an awful lot more than if you get your worst salesperson forty or fifty percent better. That if people get better at what they're good at, it tends to be a much bigger impact. But it sounds it sounds like a very very pragmatic philosophy. And I, I was also going to draw attention to something you said right at the start of our conversation of how how you thought that sometimes the most effective way to get things done well was to try to do less. And one of the other talks on the same on the same TEDx you spoke at, Michelle Hutchinson's about parenting, talked about how Dutch parenting style is much much better for the parents and the children by being less ambitious. And I wondered if you could elaborate on areas other than parenting as to why that's true and, or give examples.
0: Well, I've always thought, and this goes back to before I was a consultant, I always thought if there's a simple, easy, cheap way to do something, in the first instance, do it. And if it turns out not to be enough, well, you can, you can do it a bit better or something. But I've always been a great believer in the power of <laughs> Quick and, quick and dirty to start with. And often that turns out to be enough. And this is how me and my wife, Jenny, can sit here and run a publishing company uh, because she's a genius editor and uh, we drive enough on the internet to, to be able to, with, with some help, publish books and make them available worldwide. Uh, and we do that in about a day a week. So, so it's, you know, it, 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 all sorts of things can be done. I remember I was uh, I used to be when I was a proper physicist. I was a nuclear physicist at a nuclear power station, and uh, one of the jobs we had to do every year was close down one of the reactors and inspect it and check it out and give it its maintenance. And I was in charge of inspecting inside the boilers where where the heat exchangers are to boil the water, to make which makes the steam that makes the electricity. And we needed to take pictures, and I was told that the special camera that went in the boiler. Uh, was tied up at another more important power station and wouldn't be available for, for six weeks and uh, six weeks of shutdown on a, even a small nuclear power station is a lot of money uh, and so I started thinking well how can we do this and I so I went off down to the photographic shop in Bristol where I lived there bought a waterproof camera which had just come onto the market took it into the boiler took my photographs and then brought the waterproof camera out and scrubbed it to get rid of any potential radioactive contamination which was why you needed a special camera quite successful pictures were fine not having to wait for six weeks and the cost is about 120 pounds okay 20 years ago's prices so six weeks of output from a nuclear power station or a 120 pound camera i'll take the latter thank you very much and uh, and i've always wanted just wanted to what's the way we can get this done how can we how can we get on uh, and, and make this not a problem anymore, and that's driven my work. Sort of thinking has driven my work ever since.
1: Yes, there was a nice example of um, um, Chris Conder from a, who was responsible for broadband for the rural north, who spoke back in two thousand and fifteen or sixteen, laying fibre optic cables in the villages of um, rural areas of northern England and. Uh, it was very expensive to dig fiber optic cables along the roads and took a lot of time and planning permission for British Telecom or whoever was responsible in that area to dig up the roads. Uh, And someone said, well, why don't we just go straight across the fields? And that was much, much cheaper. (laughs) And, you know, know, that was just like cheaper and easier. And the farmers whose land was um, being... Marginally uh, disrupted temporarily, were very keen on getting the broadband, as opposed to the motorists who are passing through who didn't care at all. So, so sometimes, you know, it's these simple questions—it's amazing how even in today's modern world, the simple questions and simple solutions are still still the best. Um, and I, I wanted to move in on our remaining time. You're you're in the middle of writing a book, and your book is in the same area as your conference, which you. Didn't you launch your conference a year, before, a new conference or an idea for a meeting uh, more than a year before the, you set a meeting date a year ahead? Or could you take, I'm sure you know better what you're talking about than I do in the introduction, but it's a very interesting idea for getting something new going to set a time a long way ahead as going well, to be I've, the moment when you kick
0: off. Yes, well, I've done this in various ways. I mean, the, the Soul world community of solution-focused practitioners and organizations, we we started that in 2002, when my book on that topic was published. But we started, we put the date out more than a year in advance, that there was going to be this meeting. And we decided to have a meeting to celebrate publication of that book, The Solutions Focus, by Paul Jack. People said, let's do it again. And that series of meetings is still running. I'm less involved with it now, I go along and support other people, run that community. But there's done over 40 international events, meetings, summer schools, retreats, uh, and so on. Um, partly because we we ran up the flag early, we were very open about who should come, we contacted all sorts of people who might be interested, and we didn't view them as competitors. We were, this meeting was very much about, uh, you know, if you're on this journey using these ideas, we want to hear from you, we want you to be there. And so we're trying to be very inclusive about it. And, And that flavor has remained in that community. And and the solution-focused people, people who work with that are generally inclusive and constructive and appreciative uh, and generous in their sharing anyway. So it all played into into the strengths of that meeting. And I've just uh, come back from having the uh, 2019 host leadership gathering, which has been... uh, Uh, a great success and the guy who was organizing that Italian-German, Pierluigi Pugliesi, who's an agile coach and consultant, he said, let's write a field book. And I said, okay, let's write a field book. And so we convened this conference around writing a field book and said, anyone who wants to write in the field book, come to the conference. And the last day of the conference was an open space day when we started writing together using mob programming techniques, adapted into mob writing techniques, getting chapters started and came away from that day with about 14 chapters underway, varying states of completeness. And then I put out a shout to the rest of the world and another 16 people came forward and said, I want to do a chapter. So, And I'm just signing off the proofs on that book now. So it started on the 29th of June. And here we are at the moment on the 14th of August. Uh, of 14th uh, october rather same year and it's done it'll be published on the 12th of november all being well it's called the host leadership field book and that's got contributions from uh it's 30 chapters all talking about different ways of using the idea of host leadership in different fields and those fields include business and agile and uh, community management and non-profits and online and uh, Uh, All sorts of things, as well as tips about how to train this model of host leadership, how to get people interested in it and where it might be going next and so on. So it's a very exciting development for us to have this second book about host leadership coming out uh, just in a few weeks time from now.
1: I think there are one or, two, one or two conferences where I know the organisers who might be interested in that, but I'll, I'll perhaps send them this podcast and a link to your talk before, uh, assuming you've got the time and energy, because I know you're a very busy person and you don't, you don't always <laughs> – I see you pulled between the desire to <laughs> take things easy and the desire to get things done. I don't know if that's a cor- correct view of your
0: <laughs> – very much, very much so, very much so. But uh, I'm always, always be interested to go to interesting places and meet interesting people. Uh, and one thing I have learned over the years is we uh, only really work with nice people. Life is too short to work with idiots. Um, so the fact that I'm here with you should certainly say something about you and your work and TEDx Kazimish. Um But really, I you know, um, I am quick to fire clients who are uh, acting like buffoons. And I well, found a very, very positive thing to do.
1: <laughs> OK, there's a couple of things before we wrap. I want to try and generalise the lesson because... As someone who quite often is trying to launch new things, thinking long term, the idea of calling a meeting a year or more ahead of time for people who are interested sounds like a very good one. but my instinct says that perhaps you need a few other preconditions before you do that. Um, like and what what would they be if you were i for example, I'm very interested in entrepreneur led entrepreneurship teaching that every now and again I come across. People who teach entrepreneurship, who are entrepreneurs, and I—it's just in my mind that maybe in the summer of 2021 we should get together and discuss this. But what 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 else would need to be in place before launching something like that?
0: I think having a having a good and distinctive angle. Uh, you know, the world is full of meetings these days. Uh, finding a, a topic or a way of looking at something that's new. Because that helps people decide, yes, yeah, that's really interesting or no, nah, it's not really interesting. Both of those are good responses. You need you need to encourage the people who who it isn't for to move on quickly so you can focus on the ones who it is for, I think. So finding an intuitive angle, finding a nice place, and then working in the meantime to to reach out to people who you think either should be there or might want to be there to, to get them on board so you can start saying, oh, well, um, a professor, this or a doctor, that, or you know, associate uh, guru, the other, uh, uh, are going to be coming, and that that in its own turn builds momentum, builds interest, and a few well chosen, uh, well chosen guests, and also get the guests involved in spreading the word, too. So that's this kind of you know um, multi levelled uh, uh, approach to to getting the word out um so those i think those things are all important and then have the meeting as host the meeting as well as you can don't focus too much on what should happen next because if it's if it all feels a bit rubbish there won't be a next <laughs> the thing to do is to focus on making people feel really good about being there so that by the end of it they're kind of gagging to do something to do the next thing um but there is a little slip though there which is you can hand it over too quickly I've seen this happen several times. Somebody starts something really good and then tries to hand it off to other people who aren't really committed yet, and the whole thing collapses like a sort of falling souffle. Um, one of the things we learned with the Soul Work community was that we, we, the Bristol team, which I was a part, ran the first two conferences to kind of establish the rhythm and the roots. And then another group were really stepped up strongly to take it on, and then another group after that, and another group after that. Uh, and so on so and build the build the roots before you kind of try and pass it on Um, and establishing rhythms is also I think really an important thing once you've started decide that we're going to try and do this every year what a two years six months whatever it is Uh, it's to find a find a rhythm and then and then try and stick with that because people love rhythms and people get used to rhythms and they start You know, saying when's the next one? I'll put it in my diary now. Um, Whereas if it's all a bit random and people don't know when the next one might be, um, then they just they know they're busy and they and they don't they they lose interest. So find that rhythm, I think, is really important
1: as well. Yeah, many many things. I'd totally sign off on that. Certainly, when I'm hosting different types of events, I say a key goal is to make sure that the people who show up leave feeling it was a great idea that they were there and if you've got that that's that's half the battle one it's not the only thing but like if people come and they're regretting it 20 minutes in that then then it's a, also what you're describing for an, from an entrepreneurial perspective is very much like looking for product market fit. You're you, you you're going out to people saying, Are you interested in this? And if twenty-five people who are your hot prospects to come to your meeting all say no with good reasons, well you should appreciate the fact they're giving you direct feedback and perhaps do something else instead. That you know the only way to find out is to offer it to people and see what happens.
0: Yes, that's right. And I'm a great believer in 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 trying it and seeing that actual live experimenting rather than Trying to second guess the market, second guess people, second guess where people's passions are. So I, I you know, it, there's a lot to be said, I'm sure, for market research. But I'm, I'm much more in favour uh, of you know, trying things out in the real world and getting real world feedback. And of course, finding ways to try things out, small, cheap, relatively um, low risk. Uh, that that's a really good uh, way to, to to go on. Try it well. You know, find a way to try it small, and if it's good, you'll know, and you can scale it up in confidence. Whereas if you try try it big and it's not good, then of course you're opening yourself to risk and downside and uh, all those other things.
1: Yes, indeed. And
0: just just before we 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 wrap, I I
1: usually ask our guests on the show about their entrepreneurial journey, going back into their childhood, about the influences that led them. To be the sort of person who's ready to, and you're take, taking, in your case, taking controlled risks, but nonetheless, being having the strength of personality to risk failure, have people say no to you. And if you look back to the environment you grew up in, were you encouraged to take risks, or were you rather, are you rather risk taker in opposition to the conditioning you grew
0: up in? Uh, my parents were very risk averse, uh, so that wasn't. No, then we went to the whole, same holiday destinations every year, and and. and they both did the same job, you know, until they retired. Uh, they were very, very good people, and they were very, very uh, community-minded people in their village. Um, but that was their canvas, was sort of, you know, was a local canvas. And uh, they were, they were, they were, you know, they were fantastic people. I couldn't have asked for better parents in many ways. But, but, but they risk takers, no. Um, uh, uh, very risk averse and when I left my good job in the electricity industry to become a management consultant uh, they said what do you know about that (laughs) was their first response I'd done an MBA degree and and I was already doing some work and I had so they were they were appalled with that so I think my idea I remember when I was about six I started to create a series of books about different things I was interested in and these were all made on paper with handwriting and you know, things about space travel and, and, and those sorts of things. But I, it had to be a series of books. That's the thing that sticks with me. I wouldn't, One book wasn't enough. I wanted to make a series of books. Uh, and in a way, that's, that's still with me, that spirit of, you know, not doing one book on solution focus but doing three and a set of conferences and everything else, not doing one book on host leadership but two to date and lots of papers and articles and online things. So uh, you know, if I'm seeing my six-year-old self drawing, drawing his little books about space travel on in exercise books and trying to pretend that this was going to be a series, um, maybe there's a little trace of, uh, little trace of the modern, more experienced me, uh, in that, uh, in that idea.
1: Okay, well, and that leads into it. I, obviously. Then you know, there's always a mixture of nature and nurture, and society's impact, and friends' impact, and genes and family. If you think about your your once you left the security of the the your stable job in nuclear electricity generation, was the someone or something that inspired you or was it just as an incremental process there wasn't a sort of a light bulb moment where you thought my life could be different
0: no there was my there was my when I was doing the nuclear job uh, I got into the strategic planning unit of the nuclear energy company in in the United Kingdom and it was being run by two consultants at the time Bob Snell and Chris Howe honours to both of them Uh, they showed me how you could be an independent consultant and I thought at that, until that point, all consultants worked for Price Waterhouse or somebody like that, and, and, and they didn't. So, and they, and Bob was fantastic. He, he showed me how to have a meeting in 15 minutes and leave, have everybody leaving very happy. Whereas up to that point, we used to mistake the length of a meeting for its importance in that business. So if it was an important meeting, it had to be three hours at least, probably by lunch or something. And, and everyone then strung the meeting out to get to the lunch because they really wanted the lunch. So he started at 10 and nobody would stop it before 1 o'clock because that was when lunch would be served. Whereas he used to start his meetings at 12.45. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, similarly, we was dangling perhaps lunch in, in front of people that say, we've not yet finished because lunch is coming. Mm-hmm. And they, their spirit was so uh, smiling and, and fun and lively in contrast to a lot of the people who worked there who were very, very focused and very technical and, you know, very good folk, no doubt. But, but not sparky and not, let's just do this. Um, so I they, those two, Bob Snow and Chris Howe, were great influences on me. And then um, when I, uh, I when I left the job, I got involved in doing accelerated learning for trainers, which paid our bills for 10 years. And I would, could have been very, I could still be doing it now. It's marvelous material. Devised programs around that and then discovered solution-focused change and started to learn that and figure it out. So I've always tried to have a, you know, some some interesting and slightly different offerings. And I do come across people who want to be consultants who say, I could do anything. And I say, well, yes, you probably could, but that's not, why am I going to hire you if you could do anything? I want to hire somebody who's really good at something. Um, and so finding a, finding a niche, finding a, a spot, finding a topic, finding something that nobody's thought about before. You know, for me that's that's the great thing And now that was 30 years ago now we have the internet of course everyone's clamoring for attention and it's even more important to be unique to be different to have an angle that, that nobody else has got and if somebody else has got it team up with them <laughs> get together with them uh you may be competing but you've also got a common cause if you've got the both the, the, the both think it's a bit like um you know, all the, all the jam manufacturers compete with each other. But there's also a British association of jam or something. Um, in fact, where I'm sitting in Scotland right now, this used to be, this room used to be the chief executive of the Scotch Whiskey Association's office. And uh, that, of course, the whiskey people all compete, but they also know there's a power to having a global body that looks after it, all their interests. Around the world, and makes the rules about what can be Scotch whisky and uh, uh, and so on. And so there's always this this tension between collaborating and competing, and I think that's a it's it's a great tension to explore and exploit. For, sure, uh, for sure. And in fact, the
1: last time uh, the last time we met face to face, I was sitting in I was drinking your Scotch whisky. I think in the same building in somewhere else in your flat, perhaps not in your office, but and very good it was too. I just had, I, it's slightly off topic, but I, I'm aware of a, a hypothesis that the right way for the nuclear industry to come back into its potential strengths is to have small modular nuclear power stations which can then be replicated and improved rather than these vast expensive ones like are
0: being planned at Hinkley Point. Would you agree with that? Yes, I would. And I, But I think that those those sort of installations are going to be very good for places that are hundreds of miles from anywhere. Uh, and there's where there's no grid connections, there's no infrastructure. So if I wanted to set up a secret port in Siberia to run my Atlantic, my my Arctic spy ships out of, I would definitely want a modular nuclear reactor. If I, the idea of putting them on a housing estate, I can't honestly see it when they, where there's grid connections and, uh, uh, and and other ways of getting your electricity. So I think, in certain circumstances, I think that's definitely a possibility. Because are, the point is, nuclear power stations are so expensive because they have to be built on site. Uh, it's like watchmaking on the scale of, a, you know, the scale of a, a vast factory. Um, it's an enormous job. Whereas if you can do the watchmaking in a factory um, and build the thing in a box and effectively take it out and drop it, you're removing a lot of the difficulties of the manufacturing process and it may be that the whole thing could just be then taken out and another one put in, a bit like a Cala gas cylinder, uh, you know after your 10 years or however long it lasts and if you want to keep going you just drop another one in, plug it in and and carry on. So I definitely think there's a there's a, a scope there but I think it's honestly rather a limited one.
1: That's I'm right. a great
0: fan of you nuclear know, energy. I think nuclear energy is, is low carbon uh, and uh, I'm very inspired by James Lovelock who has been insisting on on, and This is the way to tackle climate change, and I think he, logically he's right. But I can't honestly see it catching on now, unfortunately.
1: So I, I was going to pitch your business idea that we should get together and start a company making modular nuclear power stations. But it doesn't sound you're convinced enough to be uh, to, to to get involved in that. You So uh, that was going to lead into what you are going to do next. What will what what will Mark Mikogo be doing in three or five or seven or ten years' time? Do you think?
0: <laughs> I don't know. And that's uh, that. My life has been a continual journey of discovery, and I, you have to keep going. And I think I'm quite happy with not knowing. But well, we have the host leadership field coming out now. I'm hoping that will raise more interest in leading as a host. Um, and I can get more people to go out and speak rather than me going out and speaking, you know, on it because I want to travel a bit less. Um, but then next year I have a book with Routledge on solution, the next generation of solution focused change Um, it's 30 years since solution focused therapy was invented and practices have moved on and this is a book a proper not published by us but published by routledge an academic publisher which will set out you know the next 30 years i hope of solution focused therapy and other processes and that's not just an organizational book that will be a very very wide scale book looking not looking not only at where is solution focused practice going but how does it work and I think the recent developments in inactive cognition and, and, and the idea of um, uh, the brain not being a processing unit, but being a linking unit offer, offers us all kinds of interesting ways forward on how do people change. Uh, and it's not the way that I think most people assume. So counterintuitive. again. Uh, it's, it's about changing people's experience is what helps people to change, not changing their thinking. So uh, a big book coming up on that, uh, and that I hope will um, will be out sometime either towards the end of next year or maybe the beginning of 2021.
1: Well, Mark, it's been a pleasure to have you have you on the show. We're, at, we're at, we had a little break in the middle, which I'll obviously have to fix later. But um, is there anything that I haven't asked you, or any other final closing? Closing remarks or pearls of wisdom you'd like to share with the share with the audience before we
0: before we end this conversation? Only to say that I the, one of the happiest days of my life is the day I quit my proper job. Um, and uh, proper jobs are great if you want security and paycheck every month, but they don't half suck up your time. And uh, I and I just hated having to go to work to say I was there. rather than to actually do something the people i was working with were very keen on you being there and much less bothered about what you actually did so so i found that very frustrating i did seven years in a job i did a phd to avoid getting one and then i did seven years in a job and then i quit to be a consultant and life has only got better since then so while while it's not always easy being out there as an independent you can follow your nose you can follow your uh, your interests, and it's been such a great life um, uh, followed, being able to follow my interests. It's a huge luxury, and I've been very, very fortunate. So I'd like to encourage anyone who's thinking about following their own passions and knows and interests to, to really go for it, because that is the way you can make an amazing life. And uh, there's more to an amazing life than just a sort of check at the end of the month, if that takes all your time to get. So time is the thing. Not money, and if you find something good to spend your time on, the money will come. That's my kind of peroration, if you
1: like. Yeah, yeah, and I'd, I'd say that to anyone listening to this: it's a, it's important to market test the the things you're thinking of selling, perhaps before you walk out of the front door. That it's, uh, yeah. the, 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 you,
0: can, you can overlap the two things. This is another thing people don't seem to realise: you can kind of be doing a job and you work very hard in your other time and in your annual leave at testing the other thing. So, so yes, I heartily agree to that. And I was already doing work as a facilitator and as a management trainer before I. Well, I was doing it in my job and also doing it outside my job for money for other people. So, so I managed to make that transition. But, but it would have been very difficult to do all this if I tried to do it with by and do a demanding, you know, nine to five type job, as well. Only they're not nine, nine to five; those the really good jobs. They're nine to nine, aren't they?
1: <laughs> indeed, indeed, it was. when you started the sentence, "the one of the, the happiest days in my life" or "the happiest things I did," I thought you were going to go on to say was your TEDx Kashmir talk, rather optimistically, because because you because you said uh, you said to me that it you felt more um, you, it gave you the opportunity to tell your story or share your ideas. But but I I I was slightly got ahead of myself, thinking that that was the happiest day in your life.
0: Well, it was an opportunity to put my life together and tell my story, if you like, uh, with bringing together host leadership solution process and Sunday Assembly uh, into one talk, which are all about bringing people together in a good way to create something interesting that you don't quite know what it's going to be. And, uh, and I think that's what those things have in common. And if you'd asked me, you know, the seven-year-old me, what are you going to be doing? Or even the 17-year-old me, or even the 27-year-old me, what are you going to be doing when you're 59? I wouldn't have had the wildest idea about all this. So so it's about it's about keeping going and about, uh, you know, keep, keeping, keeping up with the times. I'm very struck, Richard, if I might say. I had some great college friends um uh and we're all about 60 now and i'm so struck with the way that so many of them are basically retiring from the job they started when they left college um uh, and they've no doubt had a fine life and they've been, they've enjoyed it but they've kind of climbed the greasy pole a bit and and that's them. i have not done that and i am so grateful for the opportunity to have not done that well my.
1: Well, I, I'm, ver- I'm very grateful for the time you've shared with us today. I also would draw attention, encourage everyone, I posted a link to this to look at Mark's TEDx Kashmir's talk, because not only are the ideas very interesting, but it was beautifully delivered. I work a lot with speakers, and I know that, Mark, you put an enormous amount of care and effort into doing the best job you possibly could, and it's very much my reference talk for a beautifully delivered talk, so uh, I I appreciate that as well. Uh, Listeners, thank you very much for, for listening, and if anyone has any suggestions of people they'd like to have on the show, feel free to send in a recommendation. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening to another episode of Project Kashmir, brought to you by me, your host, Richard Lucas. If you enjoyed listening, check out additional podcasts on our webpage, projectkashmir.com or on iTunes, where you can also subscribe so you never miss an episode and also leave us a five-star review if you feel like it. We welcome feedback and suggestions of new interviewees, whether it's comments on projectkashmir.com or via our page on Facebook. This podcast was produced by Adam Zuber, Thank you again for listening.
0: You know, vision is all great and well, but execution is actually the key. The actual process of meeting those people, working with them, is in itself a huge reward.
1: Interaction between the university and the business high tech community is absolutely fundamental.
0: Diversity creates a healthy ecosystem, and I think that I'm seeing more and more that diversity. It's not just about individuals, but about new individuals. It's about you know um, new initiatives. Sometimes they overlap with each other. Sometimes they might be cannibalizing each other. But the reality is that you want to have as many as possible because that accelerates the big picture.
1: We're not going to have everyone in the world here and in this connected world. We don't need everyone here. But but the, the you know the artists and the designers, the creators they're very much part of what we what we've got and what we need. So if you're listening again somewhere else in the world and you feel you, you're looking for a place where your, your your creative juices will run, then 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 this city is certainly a place where you can find yourself. And I think you can make history in Poland. I think you can be part of something much bigger than you could be a part of in the United States right now. Not just from a, you know, going out to San Francisco to make Silicon Valley richer, but, but making a new part of the
0: world um, grow at a much faster rate, be a much bigger part of that community, and, and making it wealthy, not just for wealth's sake, but for uh, a purpose, which is to make that
1: country's government stronger,